Hey, what's going on, good people? I'm Gardner Douglas, and I'm your Oyster Ninja. What a crazy shucking weekend. And I feel like I'm saying this every week, but it's just that season. This is oyster shucking season. This is the time when you can have all the oysters you can think about, dream about. There are so many oyster roasts going on, so many oyster festivals, so many oyster shindigs. You know, it's, it's just crazy. So uh, I want to thank everybody who came out to the events this week. We got so many new followers on social media. We got so many new listeners to the podcast. Thank you all. So getting into this week, over the weekend we had the Oyster Riot in D.C. And then we had our Oyster Roast at Gonzaga. And for the people who's never been to Oyster Riot at Old Ebbets Grill, put it on your to-do list if you are an oyster lover, an oyster connoisseur, or anything to do with oysters, you got to be there. Because they have so many different types of oysters. Some I have never even heard of. So I was really surprised. And I was really happy with the turnout. And I was really happy with my shucking partner. Um, I met a lot of new shuckers this week. uh, Down from the eastern shore, the western shore. It was people coming from all over uh, Baltimore. And... um, it's always good to meet fellow shuckers and to share stories. And that's just, you know, it's, it's motivation. And some of these guys have, you know, won titles. Some of these guys have been all over the world shucking. You know, and some of them still shucking the shucking houses. You know, it's it's all it's different types of, you know, people that came out. And you got to love it, you know. We're all shuck brothers and sisters. So that's the good thing about it. Uh, We also had the event at Gonzaga. Uh, I worked with Alex. We just had a good shucking time. Um, For you guys who don't know Alex, I'm sorry. Uh, I worked with Harris Creek Oyster. And that is a phenomenal oyster. Uh, I love shucking that oyster. Just made me feel like a superstar. I mean, I really could just fly to those oysters. This week's episode was recorded at Old Abbott's Grill. You know, of course, you got a little background noise, but I hope you guys really enjoy the content. I really enjoyed, you know, talking to Scott and hearing about the ins and outs of oyster farming and all that entails. And, you know, he's just real knowledgeable. Of course, he has a great oyster. That's why, you know, he's on the show. I hope you guys enjoy it. Hey, what's going on, good people? And today, we have Mr. Scott Button, the uh, oyster farmer of, tell him the name of your oyster, please, sir. Orchard Point Oysters. There it is. All right, Orchard Point <laughs> Oysters. And, uh, Scott, I just want to, um, if you could give us a brief introduction of uh, who you are and... Uh, oysters, and we are based on the eastern shore of Maryland. I'm originally um, from the eastern shore of Maryland. I'm born and raised there. And, or raised there, I should say, and, uh, I met Gardner, let's see, what, a couple years ago? Um, we were at an event, shucking at Riley's Week Fest, and he told me everything I know about shucking my pro. And we've been farming for, I guess, this is our third season coming to an end now. 
we started the farm in 2015, and we've been selling direct and through wholesalers since uh, last October, so we got a little over a year under our belt on sales. And uh, things are looking up, so I'm uh, excited to talk about that and get into the uh, world of oyster nerddom. When did you say you started your oyster farm? June 2015, we put our first crop in. Uh, it took us probably four years to get a, a lease and the right to actually do it. What was the problem with the dog? Like, hey, I want to start an oyster butcher company. I was working over in D.C. doing office jobs, and I just wasn't super fulfilled with the work or the traffic over in here. I think, you know, you hail from... Or you work out of your garden, so you know what I'm talking about. It can just be brutal. And I was spending a lot of time on the shore, where I'm from and where my parents still live. And just started reading about oyster farming and how the state of Maryland had made it allowable or legal in 2010 for individuals and companies to basically lease areas of Chesapeake Bay and their tributaries to do this kind of farming. And it just made a lot of sense to me. It was a way to, you know, fill up demand for uh, premium half-shell oysters. Uh, it was a way to, you know, create jobs, a way to also clean up the river the whole time um, that the oysters are in the water. So starting from June 2015 and hopefully continuing on for as long as the business is in business, you know, the oysters are helping clean up the Chester River, which is where the farm is located um, in the northern portion of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, the idea is that they're providing filtration and taking out some of that excess nutrients as well as uh, habitat, providing habitat for marine life. So it just, to me, seemed like a win-win-win. And the more I started reading about it, the more farms I visited, uh, more folks I talked to, it just seemed like it was going to be the way of the future as far as um, how the Chesapeake oyster industry is, is kind of moving. So I just started reading books on oysters, started applying for grants and visiting farms, and kind of just went head first into it. And uh, now we're here. <laughs> That's cool, man. So, like, was it, like, baby steps at first, or did you, like, jump in head first with a hundred million oysters? <laughs> baby steps, baby steps for sure. I quickly realized that farming oysters is a heck of a lot of work. It's labor-intensive. It's year-round. You're out there in all the elements. You have to have the right gear. You have to have the right people working for you. You have to have a good feed source. You have to, you have to hope that, the you know, Mother Nature and the weather cooperate. So... I didn't want to go too big too quickly. I, I've seen some other people do that, and it just there's a lot of risk, I thought, financially, but also, you know, um, just in terms of killing a lot of oysters. They say you don't really become an oyster farmer until you kill your first million oysters. Um, so I've definitely killed hundreds of thousands, and I'm sure I'll get to a million mark here soon. But, um, yeah, I just started small. I my first crop was little, and then I started the oyster farm show. It was like 300,000 or 330,000 individual seed oysters, and then ever since then, we've kind of doubled each year, so next year was two-thirds of a million, and then this past year, we, we put in about a million, so it's been slow organic growth, but we felt that that was the best way to do it, kind of learn as you go, um, not bite off more than you can chew, and, you know, it allowed me to kind of scale up sales ends of things organically as well, which has been nice. Didn't want to flood the market, didn't want to have a lot of oysters without a home, so it's been good in that regard. Sounds great, man. You talked about making it as an oyster farm. Some people said, you know, oyster farming is not a thing or it's not being successful. What, what do you think is the make or break part of it? What I have learned, and I'm still learning quite a bit, 
but also looking at what other oyster farmers have done around the Chesapeake Bay, but also other areas of the country, specifically Northwest, New England, places where oyster farming has been around longer. Um, and I think maybe the secret is you got to have, well, first you have to have a good product. That's, that's uh, number one. But as long as you have that, it's really about kind of scaling up, getting to the point where you're getting some efficiencies out of your labor and out of your product and your expenses. And once you get to a point where, you know, you're moving a good amount of product, you know, you can recoup some of that initial startup cost and you're covering your operating expenses. Like this year, for example, we're going to you know, turn a profit, which for me is, is a big accomplishment because it takes 18 months to get an oyster from a one millimeter in size, a baby seed oyster, all the way up to about three inches in market size. So you do bleed money for that first year and a half. And I think some farms, it's been, you know, it's tough to go that long without you know having anything coming in. But if you can get through that and you have a good product and you're, you know, decent business savvy and you're hardworking, which is the number one thing, um, you know, you can scale and get to that point where you're starting to make money. So we'll get there. We've gotten there this year and we're going to continue to build on it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, too, it's tough. You're at the mercy of nature. So if there's a big hurricane or some kind of crazy red tide or something going on you can't control, it's just kind of like farming on land. It could be very difficult. Um, knock on wood, we haven't had that yet, but it's something that is always in the back of my mind. Um, but we're young, we're still learning, we're still in that startup phase. I think we'll know a lot more. If you ask me that question in hopefully a couple of years, I'll have the silver bullet or the answer to say, okay, it's this many oysters, and that's that's what you need to break even or to get ahead. But um, we're learning as we go. So um, hopefully it continues to grow. Right, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're making a profit. Profit is always good. Uh, what do you think is the hardest part of oyster farming? I would say the hardest part is probably, for me, basically getting started. It's, it's getting the permission to get the rights to farm in the bay, which takes, you know, it can take a year, it can take four years. It all depends on the situation, and I don't want to get too much into the legal side of things, but that's obviously a challenge. And then um, you have to be prepared to really bust your butt for that first few years and, and continue to. Um, I think the hardest part is probably the physicality and the long hours you got to put in in the beginning. Uh, you really have to be passionate about it, I think, to make it succeed because there's plenty, plenty of times uh, prior to starting the farm and then maybe even, I don't want to admit it, but <laughs> after going, getting started, there's been times too when I, you know, I'm frustrated or question what the, what the purpose is. But I think it all comes back to that passion and, and really believing in what you're doing and you have that, it can kind of overcome the, the hardest thing, which is probably, you know, startup, physicality, stuff not working, falling down, getting back up, that all, all those cliches kind of really apply in spades to, uh, to oyster farming. So hopefully it'll get easier as we can grow and get some more equipment and, you know, we can take some of that physicality out of it. Right. So what's the process like for actually, like, getting oysters to baby fat or baby What's the, uh -huh. what's the terminology? So, for, like, the single oysters we grow for the half shell, we tend to call them seed oysters because they kind of come individually like seeds do. Um, the traditional term and the term that still applies is fat on shell or fat oysters. Um, and a lot of, most fat on shell you'll see going into um, restoration efforts as well as commercial, public fisheries, um, and fat, technically, I think, still scientifically is a 
proper turn for the seed roosters. It just kind of evolved, I think, in the industry to, to seed because you're literally getting seed. Um, so you have to kind of go through a hatchery. Uh, there's some ones in Virginia, and there's some new ones coming online in Maryland. There's, of course, always been Hand Point, which has been you know, a major player as far as supplying farmers with seed um, run by the University of Maryland. Uh, you basically get on a list every spring, and you, you know, put a deposit down, you receive your seed, and then you tend to it, um, and it grows up on you um, in a big way. So you have to have, a, it's very important for oyster farmers to have an available um, hatchery that can supply them with the seed they need every year because I think 90 plus percent of farmed oysters are actually sterile. They're like a seedless watermelon or a seedless grape. And so they only produce on their own, which allows them to grow faster. There's a whole bunch of reasons for why we do that. But it means that every spring we have to replant, basically. We have to plant that year, year supply where the oysters, so that we're constantly supplied years down the road. So yeah, it's just like land farming, where you harvest all year, and well, land farming harvests a certain amount of time. We harvest all year, year round, and then we plant every spring. So that's kind of how that ADC process goes. You put them in a nursery, they grow up to a certain size, and then when they're at a certain size, and you take them and move them out to the farm lease, where they finish their life, basically. We use a tank on land for our nursery, and we raise the seed from like the size of a grain of sand, basically, or even smaller sometimes, all the way up to three inch oyster. So they start off in that tank as circulating water and brings them a fresh supply of food constantly. And once they get to a certain size that is, you know, big enough to go into the gear we have out in the farm, we transport them um, via boat out to the lease, and we plant them in gear on the lease so they're contained. Called intensive oyster culture versus extensive, which is you know dumping it on the bottom basically and coming back in a few years. So there's a couple different, there's many different ways to culture oysters, um, but that's the way we're doing it currently. We started in a nursery and we moved to the field, and I think that's how most uh, guys that are in the half shell game, so to speak, they that's how they do it too. You know, I know um, just starting off, you know, you, you find things that work and some things that don't work. From the beginning to now, have you changed the way you harvest it? Or is that like a topic yeah. that I can't have? I don't know. <laughs> the method hasn't changed. I mean, we do everything by hand. Um, we do use equipment to like wash, tumble, and sort the oysters. We've got this mechanical tumbler on the boat that basically sorts the oysters by size and um, washes them, keeps them clean, and also kind of tumbles them to get a nice, deep, dense cup. But the harvest itself is still very manual sit there basically and a couple of us will literally cull oysters by the hundreds and by the thousands so depending on the size of the oyster and I want to get into that as far as economics here in a second but everything as far as the harvest is by hand um, that may change as we get more efficient and add more equipment where we think we can use you know pieces of equipment that actually sort them by size or you know we have a conveyor belt where it's really easier to sit there and pick them off but right now it's either sit in the boat and however long it takes we harvest and count by the hundred up to whatever the harvest is. Um, I think it's going to probably get more and more. The harvest is growing, uh, especially around this time of year with the holidays. So it's just doing it more often. We get better at it, just like anything else. So instead of doing it a couple days a week, we'll probably move into it a few days a week. And then, you know, next year doing it five days a week, you know, at least, if not seven. So it's more and more. <laughs> that sounds like uh, hard work. Well, when the oysters are growing, which is usually depending on the, the you know, how, what kind of weather we're having, from late April through even mid-April, depending on how mild of the spring, all the way till about 
Thanksgiving, so next week or even after, depending on what kind of fall we have, we're putting in long hours because the oysters are growing, so we have to turn through the farm. We have to pick up these cages full of oysters. we got to wash them, sort them by size, add more cages as the oysters get bigger, tumble them. We're working on average between 12 and 14 hours a day. I mean, some days I put in 16 hours to, to meet it. Um, just, you know, when you're in your own business, it's whatever it takes, pretty much. And that's what I tell um, Sean, who's just the guy I work with, and he's been great. He's my farm manager. Um, it's just pretty much, if, you know, if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. I, I mean, you as in the both of us. Um, nobody's going to care more about it than we do. So whatever it takes is kind of the motto right now. Um, hopefully we'll get to a place where it's not as crazy hours. Um, the winter kind of dies down a little bit. I would think more like 8 to 12 hours in the winter. But, I mean, you got to think that's only from Thanksgiving to April. We have that later time, and then we're constantly fixing stuff and building new pieces of equipment and new boats for the next season. We're going to bring a couple more boats, if not three, online next year. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Even winter projects aren't easy. And, and But, yeah, okay, from April through now, it's, it's long days. <laughs> it's, you know, we hit 60 by, you know, Thursday morning or something. Then <laughs> one memorable day. Uh, out on the water, water whether it's good or bad, that just kind of sticks with you like that day, you know? Yeah. One time, we, I, I've only not been we've been caught in a gale one time. It was last summer. My cousin was working for me full time. And we knew the gale was coming, but we thought we had time to get in. And we were in one boat. We didn't take both boats that day. And we were, we were running in as fast as we could, but we got stuck in the gale. And it was coming across the bay, coming from the west, as these things normally do. And I had a decision to make with my cousin on board, like, do we try to outrun this thing, go north, um, back to where the, we keep the boat, or we turn south and try to find, because we could tell from the south, it was clear. Um, but if we got down south and changed and started to go south, we'd be stuck in it again. So I just put the hammer down and blasted through it, close to shore, luckily. I mean, the bay is not the biggest piece of water and it's not the deepest, so at the worst, we would walk to shore. But, I mean, we were taking it on the nose. It was hail. 60, around 50 mile an hour plus winds. I mean, it was hard to even steer the skiff in a straight line and just stinging your face and you had to pull the plugs on the boat so it wouldn't sink as we were racing along. And that, that day kind of stuck with me because at one point I looked over at my cousin who had, yeah, had some good amount of days in the water by then and he kind of looked at me with this half nervous smile and I could tell like, he was smiling because it was an adventure but he was also smiling because he was nervous and, you know, asking me maybe like, you know, with his expression, are we going to, are we going to get through this? And, I honestly didn't know. I just kind of smiled back and said, you know, this is nothing. <laughs> we just kept going, but I was a little bit shook for a minute. It only lasted maybe about 20 minutes, luckily, if not less. That's how these things go in the summer. It's just, that'll happen to you when you're out on the, on the bay in the, in the summer. It's just, these things can come out of nowhere. It can be pretty intense. So, well. I think I saw a movie about y'all. The, per- the Perfect Storm? <laughs> the Perfect Storm. Mm-hmm. I saw y'all in that. I mean, I guess if you scale it, though, right, our boats are way smaller, so it's all relative. It kind of felt like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, 20 minutes felt like a lifetime. So let's talk a little bit about your oysters. Uh, what's the flavor profile? Yeah, so right now we're doing one oyster. It's raised on a singular site up in the Chester River. Um, we'll probably get another brand online next year at some point. We're looking to expand um, to a different body of water. But um, basically... It's got a really distinct flavor that only a distinct oyster has. It's got a little bit of brine up front, a little bit of salt, soft salt flavor, and then it kind of 
changes into an intense sweetness. So I think one of the sweetest, if not the sweetest oysters in the bay, at least farmed oysters that I've tried. And then it fades to a really creamy, buttery finish. Um, there's not a lot of oysters that give you that buttery finish on the East Coast. I mean, there are. Um, a lot of times the salty oysters, I find that you, know, you get a lot of salt up front, and you need to get some sweetness and some different mineral notes. Um, but one thing I find unique about our flavor is that it does have this big buttery flavor. And I've had chefs tell me that they think it's more like a creaminess and maybe a little bit like more like a Pacific Northwest oyster or something out of the peach town. Like it has that creaminess to it. It's got the, you know, a little bit of the salt of a East Coast up front, and it's really sweet. And then it's got this creaminess that kind of lingers on the palate. So we do one, we do, you know, individual calls. We, we, we pick out oysters uh, based on their size for different chefs. So, you know, we may do a large oyster for um, the distributor that primarily goes to the Baltimore market. And then for, like, say, the D.C. market, we'll do some more direct sales, more white tablecloth, finer dining, maybe, like, a smaller oyster. And that was one of the things I want to get into as far as, like, oyster economics. Like, there's it's interesting how the market is. Like, we can sometimes get more for that small oyster because it's going to a, a fine dining restaurant significantly more um, than, than a larger oyster, say, going to a raw bar. And you would think that's a little backwards in terms of the effort that goes into it, right? Because that larger oyster has been in the water longer. We've had to devote more labor to it. It's definitely cost me more to raise it to that size just because of time. And, you know, yet I can, we're getting some smaller oysters out. And I think that's driven by two things. It's by some farms, and I'm not going to name names, but some farms in the market that have a smaller oyster, and they're really good oysters, and again, I, I think you know who I'm talking about, but they, you know, have kind of changed the culture a bit to have chefs at these finer dining places want a smaller oyster. That's, I think, one side of it, and I think the other side, on the demand side, is that uh, consumers I'm finding at these places, and maybe overall, even at events we find them, they're looking for a smaller petite cocktail oyster, something around two and three quarters of an inch, you know, sub three inches in length, which has always been the traditional minimum size for oysters. Um, and I think some of it's driven by the changing demographics and who's eating these raw oysters. Uh, I read something that used to be that white men of the 40s were the largest demographic that ate raw oysters. And now the largest growing demographic, it still may not be the largest, but the fastest growing demographic, I should say, of uh, oyster eaters are, you know, young women um, in their 20s and 30s. And I think that's driving a little bit of it too. I mean, I'm not to make you know, generalities, but people I talk to and women I talk to, um, they prefer a smaller oyster. It's, you know, a bite-sized full instead of, like, you know, a big two- or three-bite monster. Um, so, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. It's just, and I'm happy to, it makes sense for us economically as a farm to set, push some smaller oysters out if we can get more money and cost us less. Um, it's just interesting how it's kind of reversed uh, in terms of, the inputs that go into that versus what you're getting for it. It's one of the conundrums of oyster economics I'm seeing. And then another thing which is interesting is, like, locally it's been a little tougher to move our product, and it's been a little easier to sell it to other markets. So we just started selling to Charleston, South Carolina, about two months ago. And down there it seemed like demand is high, but it's getting back to the local thing. It's been actually a little tougher to like, find chefs locally that on the eastern shore and I won't name names, but, you know, fine dining establishments that pride themselves on sourcing locally from local farms and having that relationship with farmers, um, it's been tougher to sell there. And I think I would probably have to sell for less there, hypothetically. Uh, I'm not in currently any restaurants on the Eastern Shore. 
which I know to people's frustration that I know and grew up with and who I'm friends with and who I live with in my community. So he's like, you know, what, where can we get your oysters? And it's like, uh, Annapolis, D.C., Baltimore, Charleston. <laughs> and, you know, people that know the geography of the Bay know that those places are all a few hours or a plane ride away. Um, whereas down south, it was easier. And I think there's some, you know, tighter supply competition with local shell in the Bay. So maybe it's a little harder to get into local places, but that doesn't seem to be the case in D.C. and Baltimore, and we definitely consider those our mid-Atlantic markets. Um, I, I'm not sure what the reason is, honestly, but I can get more money and uh, more demand from Charleston, and I think some of that's because it's maybe perceived as a little more exotic. So, like, if you look at menus for all bars across the country, you can get a Pacific Northwest oyster. You can get a Kushi or Kumamoto in most, most places, and I think it's because there's a perception of you know, some exotic nature of these things that came all the way across the country. They're more expensive because the transportation costs have to be built in. But I, it's just interesting to me that it seems to be, I don't know, new markets are exciting to me. I'm really looking forward to opening some more because there's good demand and there's a perception of, like, the Chesapeake Bay oyster, you know, reputation and legacy that's, you know, been around for a few hundred years. It's just high reputation. So maybe that's it. Um, but it's just kind of, again, a little paradoxical that, you know, we're moving towards this local with everything, farm to table, tie to table, so to speak, movement in food, yet I'm, you know, I've, in my own experience, and this is just anecdotal, but it's been a little tougher for me to move product locally versus in the larger mid-Atlantic markets or even outside of the area. Um, so that's a little paradoxical, too. And then, yeah, those are the two things I wanted to bring up as far as oyster nerd economics. But Is it more of like a people who don't want the oyster or the restaurant doesn't want the I think it's, and again, I'm not naming names here, but I think it's the mentality of certain chefs um, where a little more old school, there's probably a, an easier supply to wild oysters on the Eastern Shore than there is in Baltimore and D.C. I think a lot of chefs that we get probably don't necessarily think of wild oysters at first. They think of farmed oysters, and probably it's the opposite on the shore. So you can get wild oysters for cheaper. I mean, they're just straight up cheaper because... You know, not near as much work has gone into them. I mean, don't get me wrong, harvesting wild oysters is backbreaking work. It's hard work. You're out there breaking ice in February, just like we are. And it's, it's you know, a lot of heritage there. I got a lot of respect for those guys. Um, it's just, you know, you plant them, you tend to them a few times, maybe run the dredge through it a few times, and then you go and you, you tong them, and there's your harvest. Um, you know, a few hours in each oyster versus, you know, a year and a half in each oyster. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's the mentality maybe of some chefs. Um, you know, they want to keep their mar- they want to keep their food margins up and they want to keep the food costs low, which I totally get. Um, I don't know. I think there's it's a mentality thing where like they don't want to necessarily charge two to three dollars for a premium half to return their menu because they don't think people will buy it. But I think people will. Um, I see people that do it all the time in D.C. They have second homes on the shore. There's a lot of people that have money, let's be honest, on the shore that, that are willing to pay a little bit more than an all-you-can-eat oyster or a wild oyster because they know the work that's gone into it. They have a connection to the farmer. They know blood, sweat, and tears have gone into this to make this a really good product and a very consistent product that can be enjoyed year-round. You know, one of the things where, like, I'd love to sell oysters year-round on the shore. It's just been tough. I have to go year-round to... D.C., Baltimore, and I assume next summer, I hope, Charleston as well, and maybe some new markets, and the demand won't drop off. But I think it's somewhat of a mentality of chefs. They, they fear that they won't make money off of it in the summer, and or they can't charge as much as they think they can get. But I think, 
I don't know, it's going to take one of them or two of them to say, we're going to try this, and other people are going to see, like, wow, we're making some money off these things, and we're making it in the summer. And people are paying two, three bucks an oyster, whatever it may be, or even a dollar a buck a truck on happy hour. We do events all the time, so, we, so that's been one way we've gotten oysters to local people on the shore is, like, we do events all the time. Like, we have events not this weekend, starting next Saturday, three in a row, in Chestertown, in Kennedyville, and then also in Annapolis. So that's a good way to get the brand out. We just did Waterfowl Fest, the opening night for Waterfowl Fest in Easton on the shore uh, last couple, well, last weekend, or last week, I should say, Thursday night. So getting that out there and having people try them and really like them, I think will change some mentality. And, and it's, you know, I've gone to the chefs on the shore, some of them, not all of them, just a few that I thought would be good. And, you know, I've gone several times. I've gone more than three times and brought the fence hey, let's try this, let's try this, let's give it a shot. All you got to do is buy one box and see how it goes. If it doesn't sell, then never talk to me again, you know, but I'm pretty confident it's going to sell. Um, but I think the events will help because every time you go to an event, I'm like, hey, ask for these oysters at your favorite local restaurants. Ask for them here on the shore. You know, as a consumer, we have a lot of choice um, in, in what kind of products we get. And if, you know, a chef is hearing over and over again, let's get some oyster points or let's get, you know, Something else from the shore. Well, there's a lot of farms on the island. I'm sure they, you know, probably found markets down in the Dorchester County area that that they can sell to. So I don't know. I think it's maybe because I'm the only one in the Northern Bay, north of the Bay Bridge, doing oyster culture like this, with this, with this whole farm doing it like that. That it's, it's just been hard to devote a lot of energy to that. Um, easiest way for us has been let's let's get people talking about us. Let's get them asking their waiters and waitresses and the chefs. The supply user to actually um, source them from us. So hopefully it'll change. That's the plan. No doubt. I hope so. Um, uh, do you want to talk about uh, any of the upcoming events here you're going to be doing? Just talk a little bit about it. Sure. Sure. So, um, next Saturday, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we're doing an event with Local Food. And here we are with Local Food again uh, at Crow Vineyard. So Crow Vineyard is a wonderful award-winning Maryland winery or vineyard uh, in Kennedyville, Maryland. And we're partnering with them to uh, serve some fre- some really fresh orchard points. We're going to do we're gonna do them on the half-shell raw, and we're going to also do some prepared orchard points where we're going to pair them with some crow beef, some uh, local pork, some local cheese, some yeast cheese, and we're going to, like, you know, flame, uh, not flame broil them, that's like burger thing or something. We're going to use a blowtorch, and we're going <laughs> to cook some oysters, which we haven't done before. Um, you know, get pretty hip and try to try to cook some of these things up and see how people like them. Um, and the following weekend we're going to be um, where are we at? Following weekend. The following weekend we're going to be downtown Chestertown, and we're going to be shucking at the Charles Dickens Festival. Uh, town is hosting a Dickens themed weekend for the holidays, and we're going to be in front of the White Swan Tavern shucking oysters um, for people to buy. Anybody that wants to come by and get some oysters, we're going to have them fresh, right out of water, um, raw and cold. So we'll be doing that uh, on the uh, 2nd of December. And then the 9th of December, we're going to be at a fundraiser in Annapolis called Shells and Bells. Again, another holiday theme party with uh, a nonprofit environmental organization called the Chesapeake Day Savers. And that's going to be a really fun night. It's in a historic building. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of food, a lot of booze, cigars. Um, there's going to be another farm down there as well. I think that household truth from down at Heathers Island is going to be there, and he's going to be selling his oysters, talking about his farm, and I'm going to be there selling up, you know, our oysters, talking about my farm, and um, it's going to be a fun night, um, and that serves to a really good cause, so we're going to take it to that party, 
um, helps that nonprofit is to you know continue to improve the Chesapeake Bay's health. Is there going to be a battle between you and Madhouse to see who has the best? Oh wow! Now you're bringing up that's not a bad idea. You know, I don't like doing these things with like a chip on my shoulder or try to figure out who's best. I mean, we've done plenty of events now with competitors and stuff, and you know, I go around and try them all and I have my own opinions. But I just like to ask people, and I don't, you know, don't do it in the obvious way. It's just like people I trust that I know are at these events. I'm like, you go around and try them small, and just get back to me and whisper in my ear what you thought. You know, that kind of thing. It's always good to know where your competition's been out there. But no, I'm I don't I don't like need to have that competition. They have a really good oyster. I've had it before. Um, we just let the people enjoy and see, you know, if they want to be uh, profuse or offer their uh, their opinions, we'll welcome it and we will hopefully, you know, we get critiques and we'll all listen to those too. So, if you come now though, we could have a chuck off. But we all know who's but, in that. Hey man, I don't want any problems, okay? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if um, the owner of Madhouse Teddy, if he checks or not, um, I like to think of myself as a pro-am style level trucker. I'm not, I'm not near pro. I'm probably a little better, more proficient than a home trucker. But you know, if you came, you would, you would duck us. I'm gonna categorize myself now as like semi-retired. Okay. All right. I know, as uh, like George Hastings says, I'm a, I'm a weekend trucker. I'm a weekend warrior. Weekend warrior. I like that. I like that. Well, hey, like I said, you taught me how to go through the bill and do it clean, and, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still getting that down. I, I snapped my bill knife at Waterfowl uh, last week, so I haven't, I got a new one, a new one today, yeah. I just, you know, I wasn't gentle enough. I'm not, I'm not as smooth as you are. You got a finesse. Yep. Well, a new one came. I got like an R. Murphy standard size, just big stabber. I had the competition one before, but I snapped that one too, so. <laughs> I must be a brute with the knife sometimes. I'm gonna see if this longer, thicker one pulls up. But still got some nice flex to it. Nice. So for your oysters in particular, uh, what's the best oyster knife to use to Um, you know, I find it to be honest, I can go through the bill pretty easy with a bill knife. Just stab it the traditional way, cut the bottom, then cut the top like you do. I find that to be the fastest and cleanest way. But for the longest time, I hinge shut. I went through the hinge, um, and you can do that with ours. I mean, we tumble the heck out of them so that you can go through the hinge with a hinge knife and pop the hinge. Um, my, my guy, Sean, who works with me, he checks events with me, and he goes through the hinge exclusively. Um, every now and then, maybe out of 100, you might blow 5 to 10 out, or, you know, you blow that hinge out, and you got to flip it around and go through the bill. But they're tough enough that if you, you, know, you can get in the hinge pretty easy. Um, I just think that it takes even less effort to go through the bill. So that's what I've been doing. Of course, I, you know, want to copy you. <laughs> oh, God, well, thank you. So is there anything else you want to add? The industry has a lot of potential because diners' styles are changing. And I think, I don't know, we're kind of going through a renaissance with oysters. I'm sure people have probably heard this, but you can relate it to what happened with the wine industry in the 70s or 80s and um, the craft beer industry that's, ha- that's happened over the last 10 years where people want local. They want something different. They want something that's been crafted by a few people, not a giant company. They want something that's quality, where they can understand the story. And you see that with chefs. I mean, I love having relationships with chefs I sell directly to, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to developing more with the people that I buy from my distributor. Um, it's just something where if you can shake the person's hand, look them in the eye, and know that you're on the same page as far as quality and consistency and 
you know, what they're putting out on the plate, you want to deliver the best thing you can for them because they're paying good money for that and the consumer is paying even more. So I just think that, you know, there's a strong hope for this industry because um, of consumerism. And I just want to say thanks to everybody that's had Orchard Points over the last year or so. And hopefully more will act for them. And no matter where they are, we're going to open up new markets and that's going to allow us to grow. And that's going to probably, you know, I think the same is true for most all oyster farms. Um, I think our demand is far greater than supply right now. And I think the more people choose with their wallet or choose with their purse, you know, how they want to spend their money, um, the better it's going to be. And if you like, you know, knowing the farm the stories, the farmer's story and knowing where your oysters came from, which I think is very important with seafood, not just oysters, you should always know where your seafood's coming from. Um, you can, you know, we can grow this thing. We can all, you know, grow it together. So, you know, I just want to say thanks to everybody, all the chefs that are clients and everything, um, if you're listening. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to a good year and strong demand and, um, you know, hope it's, uh, the weather cooperates. No doubt, man. Well, I appreciate you for, uh, letting me, uh, get the lowdown on the Western Farm, uh, for yeah, if people want to check it out, um, soon as far they can go to www.orchardpointoysters.com, O-R-C-H-A-R-D-P-O-I-N-T-O-Y-S-T-E-R-S.com. And you just, you know, keep up to date on our social media and what we're doing, events, uh, the process of how we farm, um, and how to contact us. So, um, don't be a stranger. Um, Instagram, our handle is orchardpointoysters, one word. And we also have a Facebook page that somewhat mirrors that. Um, if you just look or search for Orchard Point Oysters on Facebook, you should be able to find the page. So it's a big part of this whole thing, the social media, as you know. So um, it's good to keep. It's the easiest way we find to keep people in the loop as far as what we're doing and stuff we're seeing, and it's just kind of cool stuff we come across on the farm and and all that. It's um, kind of a oyster nerding light, if you will. All right, good people. Um, I'm hoping that you enjoyed that interview with Scott Budden and uh, Orchard Point Oyster Company. I hope you really got something out of it. He went over a lot of details. I'm sure if you're not really familiar with oyster farming, you might want to go back and listen. Please do. Share it with somebody else. Listen to it together. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to email me at oysterninjapc at gmail.com. Hit me up on the Instagram, uh, Oyster Ninja PC. Got that Facebook finally going, Oyster Ninja Podcast. Um, yeah, we doing big things. So uh, keep following us. Keep coming out to the events. We got some fun events coming up, so stay tuned. Uh, you might be surprised what's going on, but just stay tuned. I can't uh, give too much out at one time. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Keep listening. Keep sharing. I do want to close out with one thing. Or one question, rather. What's your pearl? Think about it. What's your pearl?